Hello and welcome to the Chris Ham Podcast, episode number 68. We got a post-Father's Day episode. I'm going to give my usual disclaimer. Life is busy. And on top of that, it's officially the summer. C'est la vie. But now that we're you know, about a week out from the month of June ending in 2021, I have officially been podcasting for two years. And I'm very grateful to do it. And I'll have a bit more commentary on that later. But coming off a great Father's Day weekend, now my fifth. And Eloise and Jen got me a couple of nice sentimental gifts. Uh, Emmy doesn't know what the hell's going on yet as a baby, but uh, looking forward to future Father's Day uh, as well. Um, but the, the, the thing about Father's Day, I, I wasn't a diva. Um, I didn't really, you know, as having young kids, you still have to take on a lot of physical demands. And if you don't, you're kind of a bum. Um, but I did get to dictate, dictate the day a little bit. You know, I had a, a breakfast of my choosing at a local small cafe owned by a baby boomer local Sound Shore couple. Fantastic breakfast and lunch food close to a famous beach boardwalk over here. Um, and, you know, Rye Playland, for those of you familiar, the Dragon Coaster, the movie Big, uh, the fantasy Mariah Carey video from the 90s. Um, right around the corner from that from that boardwalk, uh, so we, we did that um, after the, the boardwalk after the breakfast. Uh, Emmy took a nap, and then we recharged. Then we went to our town beach. Um, kids got to splash around in the water with a few other families. Uh, they really it, it was hard prying them out of, out of the water. They, they we got rinsed off, um, stored some some stuff in our cabana. And went to probably my number two pizza joint in the area. Got a few pizzas to go, a couple of Shirley Temples, and we ate at home. And we go to this place, it's called Colony Pizza. And it's a, uh, I don't know, it's not a, I don't know if you call it a chain, it's a franchise of pizza, it's a franchise, and it's a series of pizzerias, mostly in Southern Connecticut, that are set up like bars with only pizza on the menu. They even have a, a weekend brunch menu where they have a breakfast pizza. And they have this great artisanal crust that's thin but doughy. Um, a style with basic topping choices. But the kicker is they bake pies in, in you have the option of having a, a, one of the pizza pies in hot oil, which adds a perfect spice to the pizza in the form of oil rather than a dry topping. So it kind of saturates the whole slice of the pizza and the pie. It's just absolutely fucking delicious. Highly recommend. So anyway, uh, going down my food rabbit hole. Eating at home, though, was, was a game-time decision. Would it have been nice to eat on the water there with a nice IPA? Sure. But the kids had a long day at the beach. And uh, some of the skills you tend to refine parenting are knowing when to pick your battles, not only with the small preferences or treats by our little ones when, they, when they're old enough to start voicing those, but also knowing when to avoid and how to avoid a public eat-out meltdown. And just anticipate it, knowing how much sleep they got the night before, what kind of activities you did during the day, their hunger state, the fatigue overall, everything. And, and ultimately, a meltdown can completely torpedo the experience if you aren't careful. So that's one of the, one of the parenting hacks that you pick up over, over time is knowing when to pick your battles, how to pick your battles, even when it comes to something like an activity that would seem enjoyable, but there's no, there's no overcoming tired and fatigued. Uh, little kids, but summer is officially here. Um, June weather, which is mostly awesome temps during the day, you, you, most of the time 75 to low 80s, low humidity in the Northeast, coupled with the longest days of the year, cooling down nicely in the, at night between 65 and 70. Um, and you know, Jen and I are are are, are really excited at this time of the year, doing an early anniversary trip. So we're married seven years, coming up in a few weeks. We're doing an anniversary trip, sans kids, which I will talk about in the next episode, but we're going up to Boston, taking the train, using some Amtrak points, don't have to drive them to battle traffic, very excited about it overall. But we have a great show for you today, you know, given the fact that it's been a minute and the summer episodes are going to be more sporadic, people are flakier in the summertime, your listening schedule isn't as consistent, you know, putting out an episode every week, every couple weeks ain't going to work for anybody even for the listeners. But um, with that, I'm going to target a solid hour on this show. I'm going to throw in uh, more than usual totes. 
takes of all temperatures. Uh, I'm going to give a COVID commentary and a snapshot as we stand here halfway through 2021. Uh, I'm going to go into then going to discuss some random thoughts about the NBA playoffs. And don't worry for you non-sports fans, non-sports fanatics. I'm going to focus on a sociological element as opposed to kind of the uh, the pure X's and O's, if you will. So uh, some other random stuff. Going to discuss a recent life snag, mix in some parenting. Um, but I'm going to start with some thoughts on Father's Day and layer on some midlife approaching 40 reflections. So without further ado, buckle up. Episode 68. Here we go. All right, so Father's Day. So first and foremost, happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Old, young, new, and all in between. You know, as I'm on the doorstep of 40, it's interesting. You go through your 20s knowing dads in your family and it being like 10 to 15% of your contacts to being uh, close to 40 where 90 to 95% of the people you talk and interact with are parents. Which, which include dads. And it's a drastic but not surprising statistical trend. A specific shout out to my pops, Nathaniel Hamm, who turned 70 as 2021 closes out, and my father-in-law, Tony Aloisi, who turned 70 next year. Great parents and more importantly, great people. Now, in addition to them, the closest friends I have from college, high school, my town, are damn near all dads. So happy Father's Day to all of you. Now, being a dad or parent in general is incredibly rewarding, and pretty quickly you go through days where you know, you're ready to, to pull your hair out one minute or rip your ears off to feeling stricken with such an intense love and adoration for your kids. It's, it's, uh, it's quite the paradox. And um, you know, one quick tangent, one consistent line I try to walk as a parent, and uh, Jen would probably say the same, is it's the following. Parenting to me is all about instilling enough fear into situations, but not making your kids paranoid. Now, this really starts taking shape as your kids are in the four, five, six range. And, you know, hey, don't, you know, don't be kind of like, hey, don't be paranoid about cars as we walk around the neighborhood and down the street. But, hey, if you drift off into the street or don't pay attention as you cross the street, you might end up dead in the universe. So... It's quite a balance. But anyway, back to Dad's and Father's Day. So it, it's fascinating. There are people in my life who anyone would consider close relatives, and either they are being total assholes and minimizing the recognition and hat tip that you should get on this holiday as a dad. Now, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt and assume not this. Or the other potential is that they're completely and stunningly oblivious to the fact that Father's Day that on Father's Day, it's a time to acknowledge all the men you know who are fathers and not just your own dad. It's quite fascinating. Now, being a dad isn't some sort of crown you earn after years of being a prince or worthy only of celebration after decades of figurative feathers in your cap, if you will. Being a dad on day fucking one, on year, year fucking one, is hard work. Now, for anybody who's a parent, you know the physical challenges and fatigue are front-loaded. So if you haven't wished more than your dad a happy Father's Day, step up to the plate and change going forward. You know, as I age, I'm really starting to notice a few things. You know, I'm going to list, I'm going to list three things that I, I'm really taking note of now. And I'll give you this is like a midlife reflection, midlife crisis, whatever the fuck it is. But there's three things. One, number one, my wife and my kids are who I enjoy spending time with the most. Bar none. They're who I want to be with. You know, you need balance in life, but they're who I want to do the majority of my activities with. It's a good sign. Uh, number two, cultivating friendships with people in common with you today should be your focus above those who you did keg stands with in college. Those who you hit the bars with in your 20s. There's some overlap in the Venn diagram, but don't cling on to the past. Don't cling on to the past. All right, important litmus test with figuring out as a family guy who you connect with often is uh, go on double dates. Go to a local town dad gathering. 
it's a good way to, to, to find some of these friends uh, that, are, that are age appropriate. And a nice bonus is how well do your kids get along with your friends' kids? Although Jen and I have found that in a few instances, this is a nice to have rather than a need to have. You know, if you have, you have a kid who's a total asshole, this sometimes can impede friendship growth. So that, we've come across that too. Not in our kids, but I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, so, so those are the first two things. So wife and kids who I enjoy spending the most time with, cultivating friendships with people that share your, your values today are incredibly important. And number three, don't waste time with, with people that you have to chase or don't reciprocate the effort. And yes, this applies to family in addition to friends. I have a rule that you know, this is my own personal rule. If I don't get a birthday text two years in a row, I am texting you and I have to look at that friendship or that relationship. All right? It might sound petty, might sound vindictive, but I think it's an actually legitimate test to see where somebody is in your life, how they see you. And similarly, if you aren't wishing me a happy Father's Day, getting back to the Father's Day point, screw off. You know, this might sound harsh, but life is too short. I'm only getting busier. And you know, I don't have time for this legacy shit at 40. Who do I genuinely connect with intellectually, interest-wise, value-wise? That's who I want to spend my time with. You know, I, I teased the podcast two-year anniversary, just some quick thoughts on that, kind of that are, that are somewhat related to this. Um, it's been a wild ride. This is not my primary gig. I'm almost at 70 episodes. Really excited about that. Uh, across the two-year mark, as I, as I mentioned. Um, but, you know, I, I sling financial software for a living. That's my profession. I enjoy it. I'm trying to perfect it as I'm, as I'm getting into my 40s. Hopefully a very lucrative decade. But podcasting is an interesting forum. It's something I, have, I enjoy doing every time I record an episode. If I did it every day, if I talked every day for a living and I could get paid and earn a living and earn money that's significant, I would do it. But podcasting is an interesting forum to connect with people at different levels and points on my friend or close intimate spectrum. It's interesting. There's some family and close friends who are absolutely religious listeners. And I look forward to putting out episodes and hearing their feedback. And a lot of times, my pod sets the groundwork for more detailed, deeper dialogue when we get together or things that we text about. And then on the other hand, I don't know if there's, a, there's this natural rejection of even the smallest bit of public exposure uh, by some, but I have friends and family members that almost energetically seem resentful about me sh- shooting this shit to an audience on a podcast, even as I have come to realize that I have a halfway decent voice for this as an amateur. So just an interesting dichotomy right there. And, you know, on, on working its way down from people that are closer in your life, who you know well, who you've known for a long time, since college, since high school, since childhood, whatever, there's also strangers that listen. There's friends of friends. There's friends of, my, of Jen. Um, people from all different points of life. And those of you who do listen, I'm grateful. I will always welcome you engaging me on this. And hopefully I've given a bit more insight about me, who I am, how I think beyond the normal pleasantry, cliche bullshit you get with less frequent and shorter time interactions with most people. So uh, it's been a great outlet for me. So I'm going to keep on keeping on. Some COVID thoughts next. Okay, so with COVID, I'm going to summarize big picture, then I'm going to zoom into my own community when when giving context about the pandemic, where we stand late June 2021. So big picture, in corners of the world where there are high vaccination rates, the disease prevalence is dropping like an anchor. I would have never imagined that we would have been here this quickly when I when we were around the same point last year, when it, it was it, it felt apparent that COVID was not just a flash in the pan, so really grateful that we are here now. In places with low vaccination rates like Africa or India, this newest Delta Delta variant is wreaking havoc. Um, it's more contagious. It's more uh, deadly, uh, but don't, you know, not not astronomically different. But don't be surprised that as the United States and areas and communities that refuse vaccinations, don't be surprised if within the U.S. and other countries that are more developed, um, if they don't experience something similar as far as surges go. At this point, you have very little excuse not to be vaxxed. Now, when I look at Westchester County where I live, 
and most bigger progressive metro areas across the U.S., COVID cases are rapidly sinking. Now, I live on what is known as the Westchester Sound Shore. For those of you who don't have familiarity with the region, Westchester County is the stretch of land that's part of the state of New York that is a New York suburb that lies immediately northeast of New York City, uh, northeast of the Bronx. It borders on the Bronx. So it is bordered by the Hudson River on the west side of it, the northwest side of it, and along the Long Island Sound on the southeastern part of, uh, of Westchester. So the Sound Shore are those Westchester towns that immediately border the Sound across from Long Island. There's, a, there's about, I don't know, about a little more than a half a dozen what you would consider Sound Shore towns. Eventually, as you go continue to, to drive northeast up the I-95 corridor, you get into Connecticut. Connecticut's about 15 minutes from, from our house. Um, now in Westchester, though, the Sound Shore, just, just forget the Sound Shore, Westchester in general, there are right around 200 active COVID cases in a county of just south of a million people. And that's about a 0.4% positivity rate. Uh, close to two-thirds of the population has had at least one dose. 58% of Westchester is fully, fully vaccinated. And the towns that surround my town, there have been, on average, less than one new case per day for the last three or four weeks. It's really remarkable what, what the vaccine has done. So that is a snapshot of the community. And as a result of being fully vaxxed myself, um, as a result of being fully vaxxed myself, I'm now at the point where in most situations, Jen and I are not wearing a mask and most businesses aren't asking for it. Traveling, of course, is different. We go out of state. You got to check the local guidelines and just in general, I mean, not even for, for fear of anything of myself, but just not wanting to be an a-hole. Um, now for our kids who are below the age of vaccination, but at a lower risk age group, we still mask up Eloise, um, at least being being uh, almost five years old indoors, Emmy's too young. But another six months, a year, if we're still even at a point where COVID exists and it's it's out there, and um, it's something that we have to think about, and and the vaccinations haven't haven't gone lower than than where they are now. Um, that's the point we would we would obviously put a mask on her too. But I want to acknowledge that I you know and and, and when we mask up, it's indoors. Outside, you should be not be wearing a mask anymore unless you're in like literally like a mosh pit or a concert. And I want to acknowledge something that I could have probably been more sensitive on my last episode with the comfort level for folks varying. All right, there, there was a big traumatic event in the last year and a half with this damn virus, and me yelling at those was probably a bit harsh. You know, I got in my soapbox. I was very haughty and righteous about it. I'll admit that. I did it on social media as well. And, you know, there, there's certain points that, I, that I'm going to stick to. Jen helped me with sensitivity there. But while I have way less bite, especially if they aren't imposing their values on me or giving me dirty looks for not wearing a mask when those are the public health guidelines right now for those of us who are vaccinated, there are still some that are just they're not using rational risk calculators when going about their activities. I mean, you know, if you want to hear my points in detail, listen on my last pod, but anecdotally, you know, there's a woman at the gym who will not shed her mask in spite of not a new COVID case in our town in nearly three weeks. You know, she's some baby boomer too, and, and perhaps she's immunocompromised or has the inability to be vaccinated. But man, I have the gut that this is some overparanoid lady. lady. And there's, I, I have like friends, acquaintances, people that, like, uh, there's some people that just aren't changing. They aren't adjusting to where we are now. They're just not doing it. They're just not being rational about it at all. And again, you want to call that righteous? You want to call me an asshole for saying that? I'm just speaking, just speaking my mind here. All right. And um, one other COVID point. I mean, I just think it's, and this is something I think that is maybe um, infiltrating the the hearts and minds of these folks that I'm I'm referencing. It's just the general way that, as vaccinated folks, approach those who are unvaccinated. Like, oh my God, like a scarlet letter. Like, there's the perception that they are these lepers that threaten your health. And yes. There is this switch we had to make that pre-vaccination, they definitely were those likely to spread this thing to you and your family. But post-vaccination, they're only really hurting themselves or their ilk. They're not a threat to you. You can't, you can't live your life on these edge fringe cases of, 
of uh, breakthrough cases that barely friggin' happen. And when they happen, they're mild COVID. And you don't even know about it probably half the time. Um, you know, and when you factor in community rates, this only further exacerbates the fact that if you're vaccinated, you shouldn't give a fuck. You just shouldn't give a fuck. It's a fascinating phenomenon, though. And I'm firmly left politically, but I do find it's a certain cohort of fellow progressives who are clinging on to this altruism that really doesn't have much scientific basis. You know, it's hard for them to change the mentality that pre-vaccine, that mask wearing equaled pandemic mitigation and mask refusers and deniers equaled disease spreaders. You know, with each podcast I do, COVID is getting better and it does finally feel we are getting further and further out of this mess. 2021 is now, at least the last two months, feeling way more like 2019 than 2020. And let's hope in 2022, which is only about six months away, COVID will be a distant memory. It's going to be around, but it's not the pandemic anymore. And let's continue to get vaccinated and encourage others that we know to get vaccinated as gently as possible. So... Um, some socioeconomic NBA playoff observations next. Okay, so before I get into my socioeconomic demographic commentary on the NBA, if you will, I want to talk about how awesome it is for most folks outside of Major League Baseball and how great it is that we can be enjoying late June long days and being on the doorstep of the 4th of July and have the NBA playoffs on. It's fucking awesome. It's awesome. And this is one of those COVID externalities that I hope sticks far after the disease fades. I hope every year they figure out this. Like, who needs the NBA in Halloween, during Halloween, or Thanksgiving, or even, like, the whole Christmas Day thing is overrated. I mean, like, maybe you kick it off Christmas Day and you just extend the NBA season, have it... uh, have it go through mid-July or whenever it's going to end up ending with the finals. It's, it's awesome that, that it's on now. And, and um, it just gives like, you know, like I actually, for, for somebody under 50, love watching Major League Baseball. I'm a diehard Yankee fan. I've shared that on this pod. But I got to tell you, like it, it's, it's a long, barren stretch when usually the NBA season ends in early to mid-June, really early June. And then you have to go three months with only Major League Baseball on. And like the NHL playoffs, if you're, that's your thing too. I mean, it's cool that that's going on. To have like more than a sport uh, during a long stretch like the summer. And then when the NBA season ends, we can look forward to basically training camp, football, and the NFL start of the season like a month and a half, less than two months later. It's fucking awesome. But, um, you know, as far as the NBA, we have uh, four teams now in the conference finals that are really new teams that are perennial losers in a lot of ways. Uh, only well, some of them with very limited spotty success over the, you know, at least my lifetime. And um, maybe only as of recently starting to, to be solid contenders. And uh, these are new stars also, right? In the same old dynasty, the same old kind of perennial stars. I mean, Steph Curry gone, LeBron James gone, Kevin Durant now gone. Um, out of the playoffs, you know, there's no more Tim Duncan, the Spurs, and Greg Popovich that are that are in the picture. I mean, all these teams that even as of uh, you know in the last ten years were were were, were here and relevant are are out, and now we have um, the four teams left are the Los Angeles Paper Clippers with um, Kawhi Leonard and and Paul George and the cast of characters, uh, Patrick Beverly. Then you have uh, Devin Booker, CP3, and the Phoenix Suns, the young, balanced Phoenix Suns. Monty Williams is the head coach. What an interesting backstory he has. If you guys don't know it, go look it up. I mean, just tragedy and uh, has really, I mean, found his calling as an NBA coach. Has had success now in a in a, in a, in a couple places. Um, so you have, you know, you have, the, you have the Suns, you have the Clippers in the West. And in the East, you have Trey Young, the very... Uh, he's a what a classic villain he is. He's one of these people that you just have to respect his game. And you have like personally, he kind of rubs you the wrong way. Um, then you got the Hawks, um, and and then you have uh, you know Kevin Herter on the Hawks as well. And I'll get to a quick quick story on him in a second. And then finally, the fourth team rounding out the the conference finals is uh, Giannis, the Greek freak, the Greek freak, and the Bucks. And I've been very critical of Giannis. I I think he's been overrated. Been you know, it takes forever to shoot free throws. He doesn't really have a have a balanced game. He's taking threes during the the conference semis when he shouldn't be. He's not really he's not a shooter, even though he's capable of hitting it every once in a while. But I got to give him credit. He's now has a good chance to be in the finals, uh, even with them down in the series right now. But um, so Kevin Herter 
on the uh, the Atlanta Hawks. I didn't know this guy before the playoffs started, but the Knicks obviously faced the Hawks in round one, and um, you know I I was uh, like, who the f- who is this guy? And again, I I don't want to stereotype. I mean, but like a a ginger white guy who's an American uh, who's this like wing shooter is not. I mean, I, I just just the guy in general. I mean, I'll get to the infusion of I think. Um, more white American players in the NBA now and how it's kind of refreshing to see some diversity that was different than when I was a kid. Um, but Kevin Herter, like, uh, <laughs> I've, I've talked to you guys about this jackal text thread that I have with mostly college buddies. My one buddy is like, Kevin Herter looks like he should be walking into the Sweet Greens next to the Bank of America building in New York with a, with a vest from his hedge fund or something like that. I, like that, that and and I, I, I laughed out loud when, when my, my buddy texted this thing. And I, it was just hit its nail on the head. I mean, the guy I think is like 6'5", 6'6", 6'7", somewhere in that range. So that, that screams kind of NBA player, college player at the very least. But he does look like that. Like anybody who, who works in New York City, and I haven't been in the, in the city in an office in, you know, 16 months. <laughs> Uh, my, my company office is probably going to be opening at some point and you know, at least I'll be going in a few days a week here and there by the, at least by the start of 2022. Um, but I mean, this is exactly the type of person you usually see at these like kind of bougie lunch places in Midtown that work in like finance or fintech or some kind of cool tech company. So uh, Kevin Herter is an interesting one. He seems he's definitely an impact player. I mean, he's he hits big shots. He makes some big defensive plays. He's he's from the University of Maryland. For those of you guys who don't know him, he was drafted a few years ago, I think, in the first round, late in the first round. So those are the four teams, you know. And one thing I really noticed about the NBA, which I briefly alluded to, the last two decades, it's gotten increasingly diverse, but paradoxically, it seems like there are less African American players in the league. Now, when I was growing up, it felt like every roster, there were some rosters that were 12 African-American players deep. You know, maybe there was like one or two token white guys. I mean, in the 80s, you saw some of these stars like Bird and McHale and the Celtics. And then like the Bulls had some, some white guys on their teams. And they were like some of them, there were some foreign guys like Luke Longley, Tony Kukoc. Like there were, some, there were exceptions. Like the rosters now in rotation players, I mean, you see white American players in, in rotations and like people that you knew in college like Luke Kennard on the Clippers um, I think it's really cool or like you know I'm going to give you some more more examples too and I, and I think the reason is and there's always a lag on this kind of stuff but when I was watching the NBA in the 90s when I was coming of age like 10 preteen teenager watching those Knicks teams I think for some reason back in the 70s there was a stigma about black people only playing basketball you know, I even like I'm mixed race, so I I, I think about my my Italian American side, and nobody over the age of like forty or forty five ever even played pickup basketball. If any family reunions, like it was just it just wasn't a sport that 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 they played. Um, we're talking about the seventies and the eighties, and um, I think like my generation, like kind of the 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 young Gen Xers and the older millennials, people that were born kind of late 70s, early 80s, that's, those are people that started playing hoops as a kid regardless of your race. And if you think about it, that kind of set the trend for guys younger than that, playing it, getting good at it, playing in college. Like it, like it went from being really a, a white sport in the 50s, obviously, and early 60s to like very black. And now it's kind of gone in this diverse direction. It's obviously... Black stars, there's, there's there's plenty of African American stars in the league. It's still a predominantly African American league, but there's just a, a really big, interesting collection um, racially. And you know, as far as more white American players, I mean, there's Dante Divincenzo, the guy from Villanova. There's Pat Connaughton from Notre Dame, uh, Herder, who I previously mentioned, uh, Luke Kennard from Duke. I mean, these were guys that have been like that were top stars in high school, went to big programs, had NCAA tournament runs. And now they're in the NBA making an impact. And some of these guys are all-stars. And then even, you know, more Euro and global top-tier talents. I mean, two of the probably the top five, six players in the NBA are uh, Jokic from the Denver Nuggets and Luka Doncic from the, from the Dallas Mavericks. It's just, it's interesting. And here's my favorite socio, my socio-demographic trend in the NBA. There has been 
a mulatto explosion. I know mulatto is a controversial word for some reason. I'm not offended by it. It means that you're half black and half white. You have a black parent and a white parent. And obviously, societally, this is more and more prevalent now than ever. You see plenty of people, like I remember when I was growing up, and not, um, this is not a whole racial podcast topic on this episode, but I felt like such an outsider. I felt like neither rather than both races. I felt like I'd be pigeonholed a lot being called black because I clearly wasn't white. Um, but like there's an identity now to mixed race people, but, but it's something that most people aren't talking about. Who's talking about the fact that there's tons of mixed race stars that are among the best players in the NBA and even beyond the NBA? Look at other sports. Look at Major League Baseball. That's another example. Look at football. Patrick Mahomes is mixed race. You know, Aaron Judge, John Carlos Stanton on the Yankees. I mean, there's there's just so many guys across the sport. There's George Springer. I mean, I can list, and I'll spend some time doing that. I could probably list 50, 60 very talented all-star type players that are mixed race mulattoes. And, um, you know, in the NBA right now, I mean, we're talking about Blake Griffin, Trey Young, Ben Simmons, Jamal Murray, and Ben Simmons, eek, a little controversial, terrible series. The guy was kind of a bum with the Sixers. Then LaMelo Ball and Devin Booker. And I got to tell you, I breed with pride seeing this. I, I, I beam with pride seeing this now. Um, I had a hard time with racial identity growing up and usually a failure to acknowledge mixed, the mixed race nuance. So to see this starting people... The starting, this kind of staring people in, in the in the face, not only in the NBA but across society and culture, is rewarding and mirrors the, the way demographics are glowing globally. So, um, and, and it makes me it makes it very easy to root for people like Devin Booker and Trey Young, who, who I know is a douche at times, but he's a mixed race guy having success. So, um, anyway, that's my take on the NBA playoffs. Looking forward to the finals. A little snag story uh, next. All right, so I mentioned uh, a little bit of a snag that happened uh, last week. So luckily, everybody's fine. But my wife, Jen, and our younger daughter, Emmy, were in the car driving back from a doctor's appointment about a week and a half ago. And we're at, you know, we're probably no more than two, two and a half miles from our house on a road that we travel on if not every day, but, you know, four or five times a week. And um, we were stopped at a red light. And, you know, th- th- what I felt was just like, I thought like the car stalled out. It was almost like the type of feeling, uh, a more significant version of it, but almost as like when I used to drive stick shift, like the car stalling. Um, but it was, it was a jolt. I was thrust forward a little bit. Um, wasn't too violent because there was no physical after effects for me, but, uh, and, or, or for Jen, but, um, our younger daughter was, was, who's, who doesn't cry often at, and, and really is pretty tough, so to speak, for a baby. She started crying. She was crying for three to five minutes, and we had been rear ended. And we were rear ended, uh, you know, we, we have a big SUV, uh, that is built pretty well and is one of the safest as far as marks go. And, um, the this car that hit us was a Honda Accord, and there was some significant damage in our bumper. You know, we're, we're, luckily insurance. Uh, the guy who hit us was could not have had more integrity. He showed me his driver's license. He introduced his full name. He lives in a town uh, neighboring our town, and I give him a lot of credit for the way that he conducted himself um, post accident. And filed the claim right away. Uh, his insurance company and, and, and ours are both pretty reputable. And, uh, and I'll, I'll get to the whole experience and just the pain in the ass that it is, even if there are good companies involved. But it couldn't have been more of like a fucking stupid driving move by this guy. I mean, he clearly wasn't looking. He was either texting or not paying attention, not braking, not seeing oncoming, you know, t- not seeing traffic stopped and just breaking even if you saw a green light but i think it was still red or anticipating a green light he must have been hitting us at such an intense speed uh you were talking about probably 35 40 miles an hour uh, because if he had braked in any way that was significant um we, we, i don't think that we would see the damage in our car that we saw from from his type of car you know and, and his you know, like he claimed that he had been rear-ended and the woman sped off and i, I we didn't hear two, two crashes and that's neither here nor there because either way, like 
we're not liable for the accident. So it doesn't matter. However he sleep, wants to sleep at night. Seemed like a nice guy. Early 40s, two kids. No no ill will against him. And he, he gave me his, text, his uh, cell phone number. So I was texting with him the, the day of the accident. And, you know, but it was, it was a little bit jarring. And, and, and even, like I said, everybody's healthy, safe. There were no effects phys- physically from, from the accident. But it's been such a pain in the ass just adding time as far as, like, filing insurance claims, getting the car seat reimbursed uh, that Emmy was involved in, even though you're supposed, to get a reimbur- you're supposed to get a new car seat if one was involved in an accident. Eloise, our oldest, wasn't in the car, thank God. So nothing to to change as far as her car seat goes, but uh, had to get a new car seat, had to you know have a rental car now for at least a week while I coordinated the the repair at a local body shop. I mean, just just inconveniences you don't want. And um, again, it, it could have been a lot worse. And it just shows to show you, like you know, there's plenty of routes that we could have taken home from the doctor. There's probably three or four that I take consistently from that direction. And I, I you know, it's it's amazing how one choice. Just goes to show you, I mean, the reason I bring up this accident is not to, to gain sympathy points about an accident. People go through this kind of stuff all the time. And again, for all intents and purposes, you, it's a little bit more than what I would consider a fender bender. But literally. But um, it just goes to show you how like the smallest decision in life can lead to some major event. And you hope nothing ever in your life happens so it's so catastrophic. But you don't even think about sometimes that like you make little decisions and they result in good, good events happening. You know, like I think about like some of the good friends that I've met in life. Um, I'll tell you the, a story about a, a local local couple of friends that we that my that Jen and I met years ago that are among our best friends, some of our best friends now. And you know, even just like the decision I made the night that I met Jen. I mean, it, who knows? Like we could get into a whole philosophical discussion about fate and if if you're meant to have a certain path and cross paths, somehow the universe is going to put you in that in that trajectory. Um, one way or the other. I mean, maybe there's some free will in life. I don't know. This is again, we could we could sit down over over some uh, some substances or some uh, some some you know some spirits and, and discuss this at length. If anybody wants to do that, but I was just thinking about the fact that just you know one decision could result in something that that has much longer lasting effects. And the story with with friends of ours, so. We were at this like, you know, we were renting in the suburbs at this point. We were here no more than like less than two and a half years. And we were at this newcomers event for people basically in their 30s before they really have found a a network of people because their kids are before school age or babies or toddlers. And obviously it was before Emmy. Eloise was, was at that point like, you know, two. And we're at this event and, you know, I saw the name tag of this friend of mine who's now what the guy I talk to multiple times a week who is, is literally a, 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 like a, a new friend, but one of my closest friends. And I'm like, Oh, he's kind of a cool name and looks like a nice guy. He like gave me like a look and I was like, you know, honey, let's go talk to him and his wife. And we ended up talking to them over beers for three hours. We didn't like, we barely talked to anybody else. We got each other's numbers. We had we already were starting to arrange double dates and family dates in quick order. And it just shows you like how just interactions happen and just how like little things and little moments like that are responsible for so much. And you can go back probably in college and think like all the little things that you did, all the little decisions that you made and the different encounters that you had, positive, negative, and everything in between just from one decision. So uh, just goes to show you the the what seems like the randomness of life or, or certainly the granularity of life. Um, maybe it's all not random. Who the hell knows? But that's my accident story. Uh, hopefully the car is going to be repaired. As I said, safety matters more than anything. Any material possession can be replaced. Um, grateful that we had a, have a good car, good insurance, and we have a rental car that's the exact same make and model, just a different color as, uh, as, our, as our primary car. But um, yeah, so... That was our accident. Um, totes next. Tote number one. I don't know how to say this in a way that doesn't have some kind of racial innuendo. And listen, I'm going to give the disclaimer. Yes, I am. I am. I am a person of color. I'm half black, so I feel like I have a little bit more leeway to say this, even though I probably shouldn't say this. But Kevin Durant's hair 
I mean, he needs some like he needs something. He needs to do something with it. And the guy is worth too much money. I'm gonna look up his net. I'm gonna. I'm literally gonna look up his net worth as I'm doing this tote. This was not even pre pre prepared as far as his net worth. So Kevin Durant, um, arguably the best player, definitely a top three to five player in the NBA, um, with a net worth. And I'm looking right now as of earlier this year of 170 million dollars. I mean, his hair is just unacceptable. It's it's patchy. It's I don't know if it, you would call it, you know, I mean, I hate to use the, the racial term, nappy. It's, he needs some kind of like a, a, I don't know, a moisturizing substance in his hair. He needs to have a different do. Even if he wants to rock the fro, it's not, I'm not looking at some like Eurocentric hair as idealistic. But the guy's hair for being a perennial, being a superstar, it's just like every time I watch the Brooklyn Nets play in the playoffs, I'm like, what? Like, it just looks terrible. And it, like, like if he had his rookie year and then he got more money and and he and, and he and people in his, in his locker room were in his ear about how he has to fix his hair, that's more acceptable. The guy is a veteran; he's thirty two years old. Time to fix the hair, Durant. Okay, get some hot oil. Uh, get some kind of get some kind of a comb, something. Um, some activator. I I had a buddy who was who uh uh it's a former work. I wouldn't even call him a buddy. He was a former work colleague. Who was critical about a work friend's hair, um, and he said, you know, his comments like, you got to get some activator in your hair, you got to get some some hot oil." It was one of the digs he took against him. This is like first job out of college. So uh, Kevin Durant, um, I, I don't know. Somebody's probably going to tell Kevin Durant, given how hypersensitive he is about any criticism, he's probably going to like attack me on Twitter under some like some uh, fake name. But uh, Kevin Durant, my hot take number one. Is Kevin Durant, you need some hot oil for your hair. Tote number two. The more walkable your town is in the suburbs and the nicer the weather, the worse the traffic is. So I love our town. Love it. I live two miles from the water. I walk out of my house most days and I can smell the salt water of the sound, which is connected to the Atlantic Ocean. There's nothing better than that coupled with like the the forest and the trees that are in, in our area. I mean, it's one of the most aesthetically or uh, uh, aromically pleasing, pleasing smells out there. And the town is, is affluent. Not that that's everything, but it's an upscale town. It's um, progressive, which, which matches our values. There's great restaurants. There's nice people. It's close proximity to New York City. All right? Having said that, because of these things, and it's walkable. You can walk. I can walk to the edge of town to the train in less than 10 minutes. I can walk to the other side of town in 20, 25 minutes. I can walk to the water, walking to the water in about 30 to 35 minutes. And even how walkable, and because it's so walkable, and this time of the year when the weather is nice, everybody else is doing the same thing. It just creates brutal traffic. I mean, like, even to, to drive, when we were driving Eloise to school, to preschool, driving her home, the traffic just to go three quarters of a mile, eight tenths of a mile, is just, was just unbearable. And everybody's bougie around here, which I mentioned. So everybody has landscapers and landscaping trucks. And you're behind one, you know, there's probably, I don't know how many landscapers, there's dozens of landscaping trucks in like a, you know, square mile radius of, of our house, like every single day this time of the year. And again, this sounds like the bougiest thing I'm, I'm saying, but, um, and it's a fucking first world problems at its finest, but walkability in a nice town, when we coupled with nice weather, creates just fucking brutal traffic, even in the suburbs. Tote number three, babies or the babies cannot be a catch-all term for, for kids after the oldest kid surpasses two. All right. I know I've talked about the whole baby classification. I'm, I'm, for whatever reason, I'm sensitive about it. I don't know why. Like, if, if you're classifying my kid as a baby past a certain age, it's just really just, just it's just not a good classification. It's, it's silly. It's foolish. It doesn't sound, doesn't make sense. All right. There's so much damn growth in kids between zero and five. They're not all in the same catch-all bucket. All right. And, and, and you know, I, have a, I have a buddy, a good buddy of mine. He has younger kids than I do. Um, his youngest is around the same age as Emmy. Um, his oldest is um, a couple years younger, two two and a half years younger than than our than our uh, older daughter Eloise. 
And he just classifies all of them as babies. They're not babies. Eloise is not a baby. His oldest is not even a baby. All right, Eloise is capable at this stage now, on the doorstep of five, she could turn on the TV herself. She could buckle herself into her car seat. She goes to pee in the middle of the night in the toilet. She could open up a locked door and she could discuss the difference between Guatemala and Mexico. That ain't a baby. That's a far cry, no pun intended, from a fucking baby, all right? You know, this buddy I have, he's just using baby well beyond its shelf life. I mean, once a kid is past two and probably really one and a half, it's time to retire baby on the shelf. All right, to me, baby is zero to 18 months. If you want to stretch it to two, no problem with that. Toddler somewhere between 18 months to two to probably three, three and a half. And then three and a half to five as perpetual patient tester, PPT, or as we normally, as we are more commonly referred to them as, they're, they're a preschooler. What a tough age. I'll tell you, that, you know, the more kids that you have navigating in that three and a half to five range, I think the harder your, 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 your parenting stretch is. So, um, but my tote here is that babies cannot be a catch-all term for kids after the oldest surpasses two. Tote number four. So there's, I had a little discussion with a few text threads and I shared about this on social media. Like how many of you out there refer to your spouse by a pet name versus their actual name or some kind of a variation of their name? So... Uh, for example, Jen's my wife's name. I, I, I call her Jennifer affectionately at times, but I have a, I, my, my nickname for her is Honey. She calls me Bear. Those are probably the most common names that we'll throw at each other. We have a few other funny ones that we use sometimes. Um, but I've heard, you know, Babe and Honey are probably common ones. I think it's, you know, my, my toe here is that I think that a pet name creates a more genuine relationship. And again, this is judgmental. I get it. You get to be in a long-term marriage. I have a friend who's been in a long, successful marriage and relationship. He's been with his wife for damn near two decades. They've been married for close to a decade. He refers to her as the shortened version of her, of her, of her name. You know, I'm not going to give what her name is. I don't want to get. I'm not going to spoil that, or 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 or, or put him on blast too much, but. I mean, there's got to be a pet name in there. I just think, I, I can't imagine a world. I only call Jen, Jen when I'm pissed off at her. When I'm like trying to make an argument. You know, I think like you're just naturally like, I, you know, it, it goes back to my whole arc of how you address people. So when you, so if you see somebody, like say you see somebody, at, let's, let's think about the workplace or in town or in your neighborhood. If you see somebody recognize them, you say like, hey man, or hey, how's it going? If it's somebody who you don't really know yet, but you've seen them and you recognize them. So there's a there's a no-name basis. Then all of a sudden, once you learn their name, you fucking use it till the cows come home. Like, hey, John, how's it going? Hey, John, good to see you, man. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Tina. Hey, Nina. Whatever the, whatever the name is, you're going to use that um, as like, after the relationship gets to a certain point. But then I think eventually, and this goes to the case when you start making friends with somebody, you're just going to call them like, hey, either a nickname or hey, like, hey, man, or hey, what's up? Hey, dude. Hey, lady. Whatever you're going to say, it's not going to be like, hey, first name. So I think the whole progression of names is interesting. And I think in relationships with spouses, pet names are, 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 are one of those things that I think with comfort, you're probably going to call them by some kind of a nickname or pet name over time. And my tote here is that your pet, the pet name it creates uh, is a reflection of a more authentic relationship. But again, I'm going to give you this disclaimer. It's right. You can go tell me to fuck myself. Tote number five. I love the way that NBA coaches are not wearing suits anymore. It's a fucking better situation than how these NBA guys that used to walk the sidelines of a basketball game where men are sweating and wearing shorts and tank tops in full on suits in these arenas that in some cases were probably 85, 90 degrees is absurd. All right. I love this, that how, I don't know if it's a, if it's a COVID, it was, it started in the bubble last year, seeing a coat, seeing a coach in the sideline with, with a, in basically like a track suit or casual outfit. I mean, or how you would coach the team when you're at practice. That's what you should be wearing as an NBA coach. That's what you should be wearing. And it's kind of like how, you know, that's why I love the way that, that football coaches dress. They're, they're dressing like they're coaching a football game. At this day and age, like it's a, like I think we're gonna get away from suits, on sidelines as coaches. I understand you get to a press conference, you walk into an arena, you want to be well dressed. 
I'm okay clinging on to that for a while. But the whole suits and coaches is just fucking stupid. And it still happens. I mean, and, and one step even equally as ridiculous or more ridiculous than that is, is how, how uh, MLB coaches are wearing baseball jerseys. Just like, like they're fucking playing in the game. That's, that's almost just as, just that, that might be worse. All right? Dress casually. You're just going to coach. Sweatshirt, team t-shirt, something. All right? Don't wear a suit and don't match your players. So my tote here is one of the positive COVID externalities as it relates to NBA coaches is the casual attire that they wear on the sidelines. Tote number six. So I think relationship red flags that manifested itself if you were dating somebody 10, 20, 25 years ago persist often at times for decades. And I think about these people that I either dated in college I did it after college. I dated the year that I was broken up with, with, with Jen, you know, a decade ago. The people that had these red flags that were like rigid or um, had these tendencies that kind of like they had these walls up. These walls, from what I've seen now, they, they're all of a sudden not going on to live these like normal familial lives. Right? These are still in existence. And a lot of times that just goes to show you in life like... If you have a red flag, your first impression, it's thin slicing. Malcolm Gladwell has a book. Generally, your first impression of somebody, it's a thin slice of exposure of how they are. It actually speaks to the, the, the full version of themselves. Of course, people sometimes pivot. Sometimes somebody is having a bad day or a good day or they're putting on a front. But remember, I think red flags with relationships or otherwise in any situation, you have to listen to them loud and clear. And this is a, an elaborate topic for another day. So my tote number six is that relationship red flags that manifest themselves when somebody's in their 20s ain't going away in their 30s and 40s. Thanks for listening to the Chris Ham Podcast. Please make sure you are subscribed on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please rate and review me. And finally, please follow me on Twitter, at Chris N. Ham. Your support and feedback are incredibly valuable. Tell your friends, family, colleagues, spread the word. Take it easy, friends.